Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Psalm 32. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. You may follow along using the Pew Bibles in front of you. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Many of you, I'm sure, know the story of how on October 31st of 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany sparking what is known as the Protestant Reformation. Now what's interesting about this event is that Luther's intent was never to split the church. He wasn't trying to start a revolution or a movement. Rather, those 95 theses were simply topics that Luther wanted to debate. I think we've romanticized the nailing of the 95 theses a bit. The reality is, back in those days, it was fairly common to nail topics for discussion to the church door. Uh, These were topics that Luther wanted to discuss on an academic or theological level, and the church door was sort of the community bulletin board of the 16th century. So we've kind of dramatized this event of Luther walking up with the hammer and nails and doing something revolutionary, but it was actually a pretty common thing that he was doing, and I don't think he had any clue um, of what he was about to start. And the reason I start this morning with that story is because of what the first of the 95 Thesis states. Luther wrote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, in Matthew 4.17, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, the topic Luther wanted to debate with that particular statement was the Roman Catholic sacrament of penance. Penance is the act of an individual fully knowing that they are sinners, that they need forgiveness for their sins. Uh, He goes before a priest, confessing his sins, showing sorrow and grief for his sin, and a resolve to endeavor after new obedience. And the priest, supposedly with power from God, has the power to actually forgive those sins. And for the Roman Catholic Church, that's how sins that are committed after a person is baptized are dealt with. You see, baptism in Roman Catholicism, washes away the guilt of original sin and and forgives sin. But then you have to deal with all these sins that you commit after a person's baptized. And so the sacrament of penance is how those sins are, are handled, how they're forgiven. And Luther, 
Uh, even after the Reformation, he continued to value the idea of inju- individuals going to their pastors to confess and repent of sin, not because he believed that the pastor could actually forgive sin, but rather because he believed it was good for the sinner to hear the gospel proclaimed over them in light of their sins. Uh, even though he felt there was some value in this, Luther did take issue with the idea that repentance was being reduced to this act of a person going before a priest in a confessional booth, this kind of once-a-week act. Uh, And he certainly took issue with the idea that the only way you can be forgiven of your sins is through this sacrament of penance. And so he begins the 95 Thesis with that statement, the entire life of the believers, the entire life of the believers is to be one of repentance. That, on the surface, I think to many of us may sound gloomy, it might uh, sound depressing, we might say, you mean to tell me that a Christian is to spend their entire life repenting of their sins before God and striving to turn away from them? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because while it may sound gloomy and depressing, maybe even joyless, the reality is that for Christians, by the grace of God, repentance is actually something we desire to do. We desire to repent because in repentance, we are turning away from our sin and turning towards God. We're striving to live a life that pleases him. And in reality, really a life that is good for us and a life that brings glory and honor to our heavenly father. And the question is really, why wouldn't we want to turn away from something that brings destruction, that brings damage to our souls, that brings death, that brings eternal damnation. Why wouldn't we want to turn away from that and turn towards the one who brings true joy and happiness and everlasting life? You see, repentance is not simply an act of recognizing our sinfulness before the Holy God. It's a wonderful gift. It's an act of God's free grace in Christ. It's a saving grace, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, whereby we, as sinners, out of a true understanding of our sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God and Christ with grief and hatred for our sin, turn away from it and turn towards God with every intent to pursue after new obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. In repentance, we turn towards a merciful God, a God who forgives sin, a God who gave us Son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment that we deserve, a God who gives us the Holy Spirit, a helper who dwells in us, helping us to pursue a holy life. In repentance, we no longer see God upon a throne of judgment and wrath, but rather upon a throne of mercy and grace. That's the promise for all who repent of their sins before the holy God and look to his mercy that is found in Christ. The promise that a holy, just, righteous God would hear the prayers of repentance from his people and freely forgive them is almost unbelievable. This is why we say that repentance is not merely a duty. It's not only a priority for us, but it's also a privilege because It's a joy to know that the Holy God hears our confessions and forgives us. And I don't think that that's a gloomy thought at all. I don't think it's a gloomy idea to think that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. Because again, in repentance, we see the loving, wonderful, merciful, gracious face 
of our Heavenly Father. That's what David saw when he wrote Psalm 32. That's what he knew to be true. Psalm 32 is one of seven psalms that have been historically known as the penitential psalms. And these are psalms that express sorrow and grief for sin. They call on the Lord to forgive. They call on the Lord to save the author and God's people from their sin and from their enemies. They're psalms that plead with God to be merciful and gracious. Perhaps the most famous of the penitential psalms is Psalm 51, the psalm that David wrote after his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And when you read Psalm 51, you see a man who is truly in grief and agony over his sin. In Psalm 51, David pleads with God to forgive him, to be merciful to him, to wash him clean. He says in that psalm, when God does that, Then he will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And David writes, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Psalm 51 is very much connected to Psalm 32. And despite the fact that Psalm 51 comes later on in the book of Psalms, it's almost certainly likely that Psalm 32 is written was written after Psalm 51. And Psalm 32 is indeed a response to the forgiveness that David received from the Lord. When David says in Psalm 51, I will teach transgressors your ways, it's very likely that Psalm 32 is that instruction, that teaching. Some of you probably noticed in your Bible that title, that the title of Psalm 32 says a mascal of David. And generally that word mascal means instruction. So here is David in Psalm 32, teaching the ways of the Lord to transgressors. This is his instruction about the privilege and priority of repentance. This is him declaring Not only the responsibility of God's people to practice repentance, but also the joy that is found in the mercy of God. And so he writes, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Another way of saying this is happiness upon happiness belongs to the one whose sins are forgiven. Joy upon joy belongs to the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's what that little word blessed means. It means true happiness, true joy. And for David, that joy is grounded upon the promise that God will forgive the sins of his people. That's the root of David's joy. That's the heart of his happiness. The fact that the Holy God has indeed forgiven him of his sin. Now I want you to notice something here in verses 1 and 2. David uses three different words for sins. He says transgressions, sin, and iniquity. Now it's fairly common in the Old Testament, especially in poetry, for the author to use three different words to describe the same thing. But in Hebrew, those three words are not 100% synonymous. What they do is actually highlight different aspects of our sin. The first word, transgression, means a rebellion. And so David is saying that sin is a rebellion against God. That's what he says in Psalm 51, too. He says, against you only have I sinned. Think about that. David 
committed adultery, so he sinned against Bathsheba. And then he arranged to have Uriah killed in battle, so he, he commits murder, so he sins against Uriah and Bathsheba again. And really, as king, he is also sinning against the entire nation of Israel. And yet he knew that the heart of his sin and the heart of our sin, brothers and sisters, is rebellion against God. Well, the second word here, simply sin, this is an offense against God's holy and moral standards. When David says the word sin, he is confessing that he has failed to live up to the holy standards of God's perfect law. He has fallen short of the mark. And then the third word he uses here is iniquity. This is a crookedness, a twisting, a perversion. And not only does iniquity mean those things, it also carries with it a legal declaration of our guilt. And that word carries with it a declaration that we are right to receive severe punishment for our crookedness, for the twisting and perversion that our sin causes. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on the Psalms, breaks it down by saying this, The first word describes sin in view of our relationship to God. It pictures us as being in rebellion against him. The second word describes sin in relationship to the divine law. We all fall short of it and are condemned by it. The third word describes sin in relationship to ourselves. It's a corruption of the right standards as well as our own being. David is showing us the utterly complete devastation that our sin has on our lives. It puts a barrier between us and God. It condemns us in light of God's righteousness and holiness. It twists and perverts the core of who we were created to be as image bearers of God. People who were created to glorify God and enjoy Him. And it makes us infinitely guilty of before God and infinitely guilty in light of God's infinitely holy standards. The effects of sin are total. It touches every aspect of our lives. It ruins our relationship with God. It ruins our moral ability to do good. It ruins ourselves and it condemns us. That's what David's saying here. But we praise God because David doesn't just paint us this grim picture of sin, does he? He also responds to each of those three words with a declaration of God's mercy towards a repentant sinner. Transgressions are forgiven. Sin is covered. Iniquity is not counted against us. Look at these three phrases. Transgressions are forgiven. It literally means to have our sins lifted off. This is like a great burden taken off our backs. David speaks of this in verse 4. When he was talking about what it was like when he refused to repent of his sin, and he says the hand of God was heavy upon him. It was crushing to his soul and God in his mercy. When we repent, lifts and removes that crushing burden off his people. 
The second word, covered. Sins are covered. Now, the word covered in the Old Testament was rich with theological significance. It pointed back to the tabernacle, to the Ark of the Covenant, and to the mercy seat of God, which covered the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark contained God's holy law. They put the Ten Commandments inside the Ark of the Covenant. But in the New Testament, the New Testament language, uh, the New Testament uses this language of covering by using the word propitiation. And so in the Old Testament, you had the mercy seat of God acting as a covering uh, to the Ark of the Covenant. In the New Testament, propitiation, which also means covering, is actually a covering which turns God's wrath away. The Apostle John uses this word in 1 John 2, 2. And speaking of Jesus, John writes that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for us, but also for the sins of the whole world. What John is saying is Jesus is our covering. He is the one who has turned God's wrath away from repentant sinners. And David, here he is. Think about this. He's writing generations before Christ came. He didn't fully understand this yet, but he did know that he needed to have God's wrath turned away from him. And he knew that the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant was pointing towards the promise that God would indeed turn his wrath away, that he would indeed turn his wrath away from his people and provide the perfect covering in the promised Messiah. Well, thirdly, the phrase does not count iniquity. Now, some of you may have a translation of the Bible that uses the word impute instead of count. Of count does not impute our iniquity. I actually prefer that phrasing because I think it connects well to what that word iniquity means. Remember, we said that iniquity means not only the crookedness and perversion that sin causes, but also carries with it a legal declaration of our guilt and the punishment we deserve. And that word impute carries legal ramifications as well. So what David is saying here is that for the person who repents, God no longer imputes, that is, credits, their sin to them. It's a legal, in in a legal sense, we are declared not guilty. Our ledger is wiped clean. He removes sin and its guilt from us. It's no longer held against us. And then, I mean... This is what David's talking about in Psalm 103, isn't he? Verse 12, we read it this morning as our assurance of pardon. God has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. You know, that's not a geographical term in that Malden is west of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And if I go west long enough and I could go the whole way around the world, eventually I would end up in Lancaster, east of Malden. That's not what David means. He means that you could go west for infinity, and you'll never get to the point where you're going east. As far as the east is from the west, God has removed totally our sin from us. Our record, our ledger, if you will, is wiped clean. 
And that's what God does for the one who repents before him. God removes the burden of sin from them. He turns his wrath away from us. And he no longer holds our sins against us. Just as David was showing how perverse and total the effects of sin are, David here is also showing us how complete and total God's forgiveness is. And in light of that, we do not have to wonder how David could say, blessed is the one who finds forgiveness from God. You know, when we read Psalm 51, we see the utter grief and sorrow David has over his sin. And when we see him turn to God and turn away from his sin, when he finds the inexhaustible well of grace and mercy in his God, then he can write in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. What's remarkable to me, particularly when I read these two psalms, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 together, is just the assurance that David has in the fact that God has forgiven him. Here he was guilty of committing murder to cover up his adultery. Here he was generations before the coming of Jesus Christ in history. And he's showing us a remarkable confidence in the truth that God would, as David pleaded with him in Psalm 51, make him clean, that God would wash him whiter than snow. And friends, if David could have that confidence in God's grace, if he could have that confidence in God's mercy, even before the person of Jesus Christ was revealed in history, then how much more confidence can you and I have? Because we stand in light of the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed towards. We know who it is who bears the burden of our sin because the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. We know who it is who is our covering because the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2 that Jesus is our covering, our propitiation for sin. We know to whom our sins have been accounted, to whom our sins have been imputed, because the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that Jesus was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, our sins were imputed to Jesus Christ, and his righteousness is imputed, counted towards us, credited towards our account, as if we were the ones who lived a life that where we always did what pleased our Heavenly Father, as if Christ's righteousness is our own righteousness. You know, do we struggle with assurance of knowing that God would and could truly and completely forgive us? If we struggle with that assurance, then brothers and sisters, we only need to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. The question is not, could God really forgive me of this sin? When we look at the cross, the question becomes, what sin could not be covered by the precious blood of of the very Son of God. There on the cross of Christ is our assurance that God has forgiven the sins of his people. 
totally and completely forgiven. Now I've come to believe that everyone on some level is willing to admit that they are sinners. We often hear people say, well, no one is perfect. That statement's a little cliche, but it's very true. People people often use that phrase to sort of paint over their mistakes and their goofs. But it doesn't change the fact that whether they intend to or not, when they say that phrase, they are admitting that they themselves are sinners. And while we've spent a lot of time looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning, at the blessing of knowing that if we confess our sins before God and Jesus Christ, we have God's forgiveness, We also have to note that Psalm 32 gives us a warning, a warning that says that if we keep silent, if we refuse to repent and turn from our sins and look towards the mercy of God in Christ, it will bring destruction to our lives and to our souls. When we look at verses 3 and 4 here, we see what David says when he kept his sins secret When he refused to repent of his sin, he said it was as as if his bones wasted away. He was in agony. God's hand was heavy upon him. His strength was dried up as if in the heat of summer. And I think there are two applications to these verses. First is for those who profess to be Christians. David was a believer. He was a man of God. He was a man after God's own heart. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear David's instructions. His instruction to us as Christians is... Do not be slow to repent. I need to hear that. You need to hear that. We cannot deceive our Heavenly Father. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So let's be quick to recognize our sin and turn from our sin and run towards the mercy of God. Christians, for us, repentance is a priority, it's a necessity. And maybe you ask, why? Why does the Christian continually repent of his sin when we know that Christ dealt with our sin completely and fully at the cross? You know, I've asked that question myself for many years, but the simple answer to that question is, we keep repenting because we keep sinning. This is the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. We are new creations. The old man has been put to death. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, no longer citizens of the kingdom of this world. So what do you think it does to our Heavenly Father, who gave his own Son for us when we sin? What do you think it does to our Heavenly Father when we act as if we are not new creations? What do you think it does to him when we act as if we are the old man? What do you think it does to him when we act as if we are still citizens of the kingdom of this world? Brothers and sisters, it breaks his heart. And it should break our hearts as well. You see, it is because we are forgiven. Because we grasp on some level the love, the triune God for us. That we run with confidence to the throne of grace. And tell our Heavenly Father that we are so very sorry for our sins. It's because we come because we are forgiven that we come to him and cry out, "Lord, have mercy on me. I have no excuse. I am guilty for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, my savior, my propitiation. Have 
mercy on me and forgive me. It's because the throne of God for us and Jesus is not a throne of wrath, but rather a throne of mercy. The throne of a heavenly father who looks on us with a steadfast love that endures forever. That we come before him in humble confession, pleading with him to help us, pleading with him to give us the power of the Holy Spirit to truly hate and grieve our sin and turn away from it and live a life that brings him glory. And when we do that, we begin to see how repentance becomes a privilege because we are not cast away. We do not become the objects of God's holy wrath as we deserve, but rather we say like David here in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. If that's the first application of this of these verses here, the second application that must be for those who have not looked to God in faith and repentance yet. You know, guilt's a common human condition. I think everyone struggles with it. I've talked to enough people in this world to know that just about everyone has guilt on some level. And I mean, the proof of that is uh, all we have to do is simply look at other religions and philosophies and worldviews, and even our politics, guilt is a major driving factor in the human experience. And the truth is, no one knows what to do with their guilt. Except the Christian. We know what to do with our guilt. We know the solution. The solution for our guilt is found in the God-man, Jesus Christ. We know that in Him, the burden of your guilt the burden of my guilt, the burden of our sins, of our failings, can be taken off of us. You don't have to carry your guilt anymore. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that is my plea for you. Look to Christ. If you understand that you're guilty, if you understand on some level the depth of your sin, then please understand the mercies of God in Jesus. Turn away from your sin with grief and hatred for it. Turn towards God and know the true blessing of having your sins forgiven. Listen, everyone will stand before the throne of the perfectly just God someday. And you can either go before that throne of, ju- before that throne of judgment and be crushed by the awesome weight of sin, face the waters of God's judgment for all eternity, or you can go before that throne, having your sins covered by the blood of Jesus. You can go before that throne, having the burden of your sin carried by Jesus, having the guilt of your sin imputed unto Jesus and His righteousness given to you. And if you do that, the throne of judgment will no longer be a throne of condemnation, but rather a throne of salvation. So listen to David's words here 
and seek God while he may be found. Because if you do, those rushing waters of judgment will not reach you. Just as God delivered Moses and the Israelites through the waters of the Red Sea, just as God delivered Noah and his family from the waters of the flood, God will deliver you. He will be your hiding place. He will preserve you in times of trouble. He will surround you with shouts of deliverance. And then you will join the chorus of a great multitude whose song is blessed as the one whose transgressions have been forgiven. It's promised. It's promised in the word of God. It's promised in here in verse 10 of Psalm 32. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. That's the hope. That's the promise for all who look to God in Christ in humble repentance and faith. Well, I just want to close this morning by touching quickly on verses 8 and 9. These two verses are a bit of a mystery. The mystery surrounds who is the one speaking here in these verses. Many believe David is still the one speaking here, and if that's the case, then this becomes the heart of Psalm 32. David, knowing the grace and mercy of God, knowing the blessing and the joy and the happiness of being forgiven of his sins, is now overflowing with joy and is now declaring this wonderful gospel truth of the forgiveness of sins. And that's certainly a biblical way of understanding these two verses. Surely those of us who have been forgiven have a great joy and declaring and instructing the gospel to others. That's one of the reasons why I love to preach on Psalm 32, because I have been forgiven of much. And it's a joy to stand before you and declare the wonderful mercy of God. But many other commentators believe that David is no longer speaking in these two verses, but rather, this is the Lord responding to David. I personally... Take this understanding for many reasons, primarily because then these two verses become a promise, a wonderful promise of God to us. As the Lord responds to David here, what the Lord is saying is that not only has he forgiven our sins, but it is he who will keep us on the right path. It is God himself who will teach And instruct us in the ways we should go. It is God who will watch over us. His eyes ever upon us. And God, by the way, to the prophet Ezekiel, promised this exact thing. Promises. It is that God, it is God who will hold us fast. And that's a great promise. That's a great comfort for us. Again, if I can quote James Montgomery Boyce, he says about these last few verses, I'm glad God promises to do this for us. For as great as forgiveness is, the one who has sinned and has been forgiven does not want to repeat the sin or fall again into error, but rather wants to go on walking in the right way. And so please our Heavenly Father. How are we to do that unless God is to keep his eye upon us? I think that James Montgomery Boyce is absolutely right. It is a great promise and it gives us assurance to know that God is holding us fast. And if we stray off that path, if we stray off the right path, the path of righteousness, he will bring us back. 
even if it means putting a bit in our mouth and yanking us like a stubborn mule back onto the right path. And so we say, brothers and sisters, repentance truly is, yes, a priority of the Christian life, but also a privilege. Through repentance, God has truly blessed us. Through it, we can say, along with David in verse 11, that we are glad in the Lord, that we rejoice. We can shout for joy because we have been made righteous and upright in heart. It is because of what God does in and through repentance that makes our hearts overflow with joy. You know, that's why we sing songs like, My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price for all my sins at Calvary. That's why we sing, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. That's why we're going to sing in just a moment, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's why we sing what we sing. That's why David wrote Psalm 32. We are truly blessed to know that the Lord our God, our Creator, our Father, our Redeemer, has forgiven all of our sins in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.